Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. So y'all, today, consider this, the age of consolidation. Interesting, a little terrifying, but with the lack of crucial conversations, changing the narrative, pushing back on management, reevaluating money, these are all great ideas, catchy phrases, but for most of us, it's empty rhetoric. We know our KPIs are jacked, we know our type curves are jacked, we know that reserves are jacked, and as a whole, we understand that we've moved away from engineering and science of the industry. So we may say that we've turned oil into a bit of a Ponzi scheme, yet on LinkedIn every day, we're seeing some BS inspirational statement about how great someone's team is excelling or one's company is doing. Great, that's fine, but we need more than that. And why aren't we getting it? Well, it's mainly because we all want jobs and jobs are hard to find right now. But here's the thing, everything's changing. We are at a pivot point and it's so crucial, but most of us aren't willing to steer it. Well, luckily for us, there are a few influencers here who have found their voice and they're leading the charge. Today, we are speaking with Oilfield's ultimate hellraiser. He has found his platform and isn't backing down. He is a businessman, a reservoir engineer, an ops guy, and an author. And he is here today to give us a firsthand lesson in changing the narrative and what that actually looks like. Please help me welcome Mr. DRW himself, David Ramsden Wood. Welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thanks, Catherine. That was a pretty good hot take to start the day. <laughs> I was, I was uh, getting like goosebumps. It was oh, good. good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, thank you so much for joining I have to say, you're kind of a boss. <laughs> I was told that not to reach out to you because I was not famous enough, but I do appreciate you taking the time. And if oil doesn't work out for you, may I suggest a cult leader? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it's been uh, it's been an interesting ride. I really do appreciate you reaching out. Um, <laughs> I think I've, I've said this before, but I think it's extremely important that our industry starts to have a face instead of just this random person that that politicians can yell at. Um, exactly about all the things that we're doing that are bad because I mean I'm a huge advocate for the industry there's a lot we do amazing things but we're also in a real challenge and um, I guess going back to the start of the first hot take I felt uh, as though people weren't telling people the truth Mm -hmm. and and you know there's lots of different forms of truth but uh, a a unmonetizable undirected uh, form of truth, I think it w- was important, and it's obviously resonated with people over about the last year. So, happy to be here. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. Um, but I will tell you, I have some spies in your office, and they have definitely given you up. But before I go into their line of questions and mine, uh, can you take us back to the beginning? How did you get started? I know oil's in your blood, but really, what drove you all the way back to the beginning before you moved down to Denver? Can you give us the full? The full sweep of it. Sure. Um, so my dad was uh, my dad was in oil and gas. He was with Exxon uh, in 1980. So he and my mom had moved down to New York, and uh, then my sister and I were born. So, ergo, we're both U.S. citizens and and uh, have had uh, Canadians well, in disguise. Canadians in disguise. <laughs> uh, we moved back to Calgary, which is where my parents were from. And then uh, my first experience with bankruptcy was when my dad was with Dome Petroleum. He was uh, head of marketing. 
Uh, and uh, my, my father-in-law, as it turned out, was the CFO, and they used to have epic battles, which uh, I think is absolutely hilarious. That's amazing, um, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, so, so Dome went through bankruptcy. BP ultimately bought it out of bankruptcy in the 80s. Uh, we were offered a transfer. We, by meaning my father, uh, were offered a transfer to Chicago. He decided to turn it down. So my first exposure to you know, downturns and all that was 1986. Uh, I always wanted to be in oil and gas, uh, and so I went to the University of Calgary, took an engineering degree, uh, did an internship, which for those who are, who are thinking about entering their career, to the degree that your university has an internship program, I took 16 months between year three and year four, and I worked at Canadian Hunter, which ended up being bought by Burlington, which ended up being bought by ConocoPhillips. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I was an intern, I got 16 months of work experience, and uh, Really early on, I discovered that there were all these data tools and that our industry has the greatest data in the world. So I would do my day job, and then at night, I would stay and do mergers and acquisition analysis for my dad. Um, Not that he was even working, he was retired, but we would buy oil stocks. So I would do all the research, and I came up with this idea that I thought was the greatest ever. And so I wrote a report on it, and I left it on my boss's desk. And as an intern? As an intern. And she's like, that's, you, don't that's even, ballsy. you don't even really work here. I'm like, I know, that's, but this is really good. It ended up going almost all the way to like a transactable. It was about a $400 million deal, and it went like to the final stages. And so, Whoa. yeah, so needless to say, when I was interviewing uh, for, for real jobs after university, and that was the story I told, uh, some people were very afraid to have me on their staff because yeah, um, I can imagine. Yeah, and but but Anadarko took a chance on me and started me in reservoir engineering and business development. I'm surprised like other company didn't try and hire Conoco. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, point. exactly. Um, but I, I mean, again, uh, I think people who who have seen me or see me write, uh, I'm not your typical engineer. Most mm-hmm. people wouldn't assume I'm an engineer, and uh, <laughs> so well, you're an author. Uh, I, I am. I am a writer. Until it's published, I'm an author. Uh, I'm not an author. But anyway, so that's that's really how it started. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always loved it. I started in Reservoir. When they moved me to completion engineering and production engineering, about four years into my career, I cried. Um, because I was like, I can't be in operations. Like I'm a BD guy. I'm a, you know, (laughs) and, um, anyway, I'm so glad I did because I did ultimately, that was the differentiator was that I, I base everything I do in reservoir and economics and business development and understanding the industry. But then every, since my three years or four years in, I've done nothing but operations. Mm -hmm. Um, so tying the two, it it was really good, you know, flash forward, skip a whole bunch of years, but in 2016, two partners and myself. (coughs) <coughs> Pardon me. You're fine. Um, I was yelling at kids at uh, coaching hockey all weekend. So, um, <laughs> true Canadian. It's true Canadian. <laughs> but anyway, so two partners and I uh, co-founded One Energy Partners, which was backed by Carnelian. It was a private equity mm-hmm. uh, backed company. We had a seventy-five million dollar commitment and no basin to really focus on. And the three of us were sort of able to combine our skill sets to come up with what ultimately was twelve thousand acres and, and five wells to be caused to be drilled in the uh, Delaware Basin. Mm-hmm. And we're able to exit that position in 2018, including selling the last asset to Franklin Mountain, uh, which is an amazing story as well. And so Franklin Mountain bought the Fed sale, bought the last piece of One Energy, and a number of the One Energy team decided to come over and, and work with Franklin Mountain because we like the guys so much and, and we're so impressed with them. So that's the that's the Franklin Mountain One Energy and my background in five minutes. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. Um, so let's jump into your hot takes because I know that's why everybody sort of follows you now. That is definitely your platform. Mm-hmm. And I understand how you got started. I think most podcasts have actually hit on how and why. 
what's been the reception? Because this industry is not known for favoring those with an opinion. Um, you know, I would say 99% has been very positive. Cool. Let's uh, talk about the 1%. Yeah. The, the 1% is more exciting, obviously. Um, I mean, look, look, I think, I think that people who are super, super, super duper experts in mm -hmm. a particular field, whether it's reservoir characterization or business development or finance or something in 1300 characters a day and trying to touch on everything, you're not going to be an expert on it. Um, and so I would say that, that a lot of the feedback that is negative are people taking like one sentence out of context and mm. being like, this is the example of why that's not right. And, and, you know, thematically, I would say it's trying to do two things. Number one, I think a lot of people aren't exposed to it because in big companies, if you're a reservoir engineer, you you're probably siloed. don't, you don't see, and I think the silos are, are problematic, not oh, only yeah. in engineering disciplines or geoscience disciplines, but across finance, across accounting, mm -hmm. across land. So, so part of it is to kind of be a, a little bit of a teaching um, opportunity. I've always loved mentoring and teaching. Um, and, you know, yeah, uh, people don't like what I say sometimes. Um, but I, I think what has been what has worked is because it's it's honest, mm -hmm. it's transparent and generally it's been right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been calling for the rig count in the U.S. to go to 700 since December. I've been calling for consolidation pretty aggressively since mid-January. Yeah. Again, none of this is new ideas, but I've been thematically consistent, and, and the things that I've sort of projected seem to be coming true. So so the, the truth ultimately helps. But there are a lot of people waiting to say, I told you so. They um, are, yeah. So so <laughs> no, no doubt I will be wrong uh, very often, and, and people will come out of the woodwork and tell me. So here's a question. For the masses, I see everyone leaving comments, rooting you on, but across C-suite, you are a COO. Are you getting any pushback from other executives at all? You know, I mean, I, I feel very blessed with, with Frank. I mean, I do the hot take of the day as me. Mm -hmm. And so I really want to differentiate whatever my role is. My role simply gives credibility to the fact I've been in this industry for 20 years. Oh, absolutely. Um, do other C-suite people? No. I mean, most <laughs> when I was at Intercom... Um, and I talked with a number of, of, uh, of friends of mine who are running companies now. And, and the context is always, don't write about me, please. But, you know, here's what I think. So yeah. every, everyone sees it. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the C-suite's defense, it is very hard to do something different. And, mm -hmm. and so to come out and say, look, we don't have the inventory we thought. Our spacing is too tight. Our balance sheet is horrible. Kills your stock. Your stock is done. Mm -hmm. And and that then, you know, fiduciary responsibility and all this other thing. So so I, I don't want it, my points to ever come across as like hating on them. Everyone has a challenge, but the reality is 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 when you're sitting in your 2020 budget planning exercise, you can't be saying, oh, type curves are going to get better because they're not. Statistically, factually, type curves are not getting better. <laughs> we're getting better wells because we're drilling them longer. And when we're drilling them tighter, we're getting sharper declines, and we need to factor that into our Bs. So just put that in, run your business, and, mm -hmm. and do the best you can for the shareholders. But you know, we're three years too late probably to have actually been able to change the course of where we're going. Oh, I would agree completely. Yeah. So what's going to be your end game with these hot takes? Because I do wake up and read them every morning. I think they're hilarious and very informative. You know, you're saying what people wish they had the guts to say, quite frankly. I don't, you know, I just before I answer that, I'm mm -hmm. not going to say it's not guts. 
Um, I have kind of is guts. It is guts. It is guts. <laughs> okay, it, there's some guts to it, but I've been I've been very fortunate that that I'm in um, I'm in a place in my career and with the success of selling One Energy, with the wonderful people I work with at Franklin Mountain, having the team that we have. Like I I do have a bit of a unicorn scenario, and so mm-hmm. so I don't want to call it guts because you in your intro in your hot take of the day to start. Um, people do need jobs. And, and yeah. I tell everyone who says, hey, there's this PE opportunity. I'm thinking about leaving my company for. I'm like, don't. Mm-mm. You just need Not to right survive now. for two to three years for the industry to get healthy. And so when employment is the primary driver, um, you, you, can't, you can't be the squeaky wheel. It's very unfortunate, but it's factual. So I don't want to call it guts. I just happen to have a very unique situation that allows me to say it. It's funny you say you can't be the squeaky wheel when we are at a pivot point when our type curves, you said they're false in some capacity, we're just extending the lateral. The reality is, is that they were probably false to begin with in the beginning because we were jacking it up. We were making it look better. So it seems like the pivot point is the time to be the squeaky wheel. You're putting your neck on the line. I get it. But how are we going to get better unless we call out the the but I, so to me, and I got asked this question at a conference last week, is is you have to do it internally. And so when I did my MBA, I was working, I was commuting back and forth between Denver and Calgary. Mm-hmm. I, I never saw my family. I never saw my kids. And so there, there life was trade-offs. Yeah. And, and so the, the motto of our team was, can you live with it? So we would do a group project, and it might not be perfect, but if you could live with it, you could go and so I use that same thing when, when you're trying to give advice to your boss. Yes, <laughs> yes, the type curve is wrong. Mm-hmm. Here is the data. Here's what I think. Then your boss has to balance all of the other external factors that include him keeping or him or her keeping their job and then their boss keeping his or her job. And Very so there, there, there are a lot of things that all factor in. Yeah. So all you can do is give the best recommendation you can in a private setting that is not offensive. You know, type curves might be wrong at your company, so tell yeah. your boss. Once you've told your boss, your, your job is done, in, in my opinion. Um, I am able to be, again, at a private company um, personally and, and broadly privately backed. Mm-hmm very few stakeholders uh, with an asset, I'm, I'm able to comment on industry themes that other people aren't. Yes. So, so that, that's, the, that's the gut comment. Where, where does the hot take end? I mean, there, there's a scenario where one day I just stop writing. And, yeah, please don't. And it, it just, you know, you go out on top and... Um, if you say today it's gotten better, that's the only time you're allowed to stop. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I, I've been doing it now for 10 months and uh, I, I really enjoy it. I love meeting the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, people reach out. I love the comments. I'm trying to get more comments. Um, I, I've been I've pivoted a couple times from the beating series to the leverage series. It's now, funny when it's not you getting beaten <laughs> right <laughs> yeah no exactly when it's not your discipline you're like oh exactly shit. <laughs> um but i mean i think i think of late and as i think about 2020 coming up i don't want to weigh into politics but Mm-mm. i don't like when people attack the oil and gas industry and they don't have faces to come and attack so mm-hmm. so if if there are external people who want to attack oil and gas you're more than welcome to come after me and let's have a dialogue let's let's get on some podcasts let's get on some television shows and let's talk about what we really do mm-hmm. and how great these people are and how we've you know the regulations in North America and in the US 
are so much better than the other places we get our energy. And so let's talk about real solutions. So I would say that's sort of been the pivot in the last couple of weeks. And, and okay. I'm probably going to start talking a lot more about energy. And because um, now everyone knows we're, we're in crisis mode. And we're in crisis <laughs> mode. So now I, I have to down. pivot to the next to the next topic. What is your fascination with peak oil? You've had this fascination mm -hmm. for a while. I think two years ago when I first spoke to you, you were talking to me about peak oil. So can you kind of give us the broad overview of why this fascinates you so much? Well, um, that's a great, it's a great question. Um, I think I'd be lying if, if I don't, but the big short, I think everyone who's read me knows is my favorite movie. And um, I, I, I love the movie because it captures what was happening in, in 2005 and 2008. Mm -hmm. And 99% of people just weren't paying attention. And Correct. so you would watch CNBC, you'd watch Bloomberg Television, and everything the talking heads would say, you would sort of repeat. But, but the, the fact that the, the underlying business was so rotten and, and the fact that the world economy was almost brought down because people weren't paying attention to details really struck me at the core. I mean, I, I never will forget the day that the Dow fell 777 points in a day. Mm -hmm. And um, Stephen Colbert was on was on his show, and he talked about how the only stock that went up that day was was Campbell's, which is true. But he said, mm -hmm, I'm buying, and, and I'm buying beef stock and chicken stock <laughs> and, you know, pork stock and all the things because, like, literally, I thought we were going to go to cows and chickens in the backyard because the economy was broken. So when I, when I see what oil and gas companies have done in the last three years, mm -hmm. where, where clearly every single spare cash flow is going to drilling more, mm -hmm. and everyone knows that the U.S. has grown from you know, 8 million barrels a day to 12.5 million barrels a day, global demand for oil is not growing really that fast, and, and OPEC Plus has an unlimited tap. And if there was any question about it, the attacks September 14th mm -hmm. show that that is the case. Mm -hmm. They went down like... 7 million barrels a day, 6 million barrels a day. And within two days, prices were basically back to where they were. And now they're trading below because they literally have a tap. Exactly. The U.S. doesn't have a tap. And so I, I have been very frustrated that that no one is actually running the models on, on actual type curves, actual inventory. And the fact that oil hasn't grown since December 2018, so in eight That's months scary. after all the capital we've spent, we haven't grown, which means we're not a growth industry which means we have to stop telling people we can grow out of debt, mm -hmm. which means we need to merge. So so to me, the peak oil fascination was that if we stop accepting that we can just grow production forever and grow our way out of debt, if we transition to the industry that we should be, I like our industry a lot better than we work and Uber. And, mm -hmm. and <laughs> yeah, we know. <laughs> you know um, so let's just, but let's run it like a business. Yeah. So, so I guess that's my fascination is I think peak oil is a catalyst for change. Mm -hmm. And more specifically, once... The, once the U.S. politicians realize that we're not energy independent yeah. and that oil is going to decline and that natural gas is a clean source of power, that we need to have oil and gas be talked about as part of our energy solution, mm -hmm. not as the bad guys who, as Bernie Sanders would say, should go to jail. That's Ugh. just It just drives me crazy. So that would be my peak oil, why do I care so much, um, wrapped up. Plus, I love to be right. And yeah. I love to be the only one out <laughs> on the limb saying that we're at peak oil. So we'll see if I'm right. I don't know. Mark did tell me he won a few uh, dinners from you about when we'd actually hit it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I tend I tend to call things uh, far in advance. You know, like the rig count was call in it December. Call the gift of foresight. <laughs> it's it's. But I was ten months early on how fast rigs were going to drop, and and I did miss I did miss that you have some of the debt related problems. So mm -hmm. anyway, happens to us all. Um, 
Okay, so we're in the age of consolidation. We already operate lean and mean, and we're always forced to operate more lean, more mean. Mm -hmm. Faster, better, longer, stronger. What's going to happen now that we're running out of money, people are consolidating, we're giving up on our greatest asset, which is our people, our engineers, our geos. Geos are hurting far more than engineers are right now. Yeah. So what's the next five years going to look like in terms of this consolidation effect on our people? Um, How do we protect our people? I mean, I think there's, protecting the people is tough. I mean, the, yeah. so this, this, is, this is part of why the hot take works because of what I'm about to say. 30% <laughs> of companies are going away. And yeah. that means that at least 30% of employment is going away. So I, I always use the coal example, and people don't like the comparison of dirty versus clean. This isn't a statement of, of the fuel source. No, but, this is people. But, yeah. but coal, coal has ceased to be the, the employer that it was mm -hmm. as, as regulations changed and, and, and it declined. Um, we don't need the number of companies that are trying to produce oil and gas right now, mm -hmm. I would make the case that every single acre that is worth drilling today is already owned by somebody. So the great land grab is gone. Um, you have a whole bunch of poorly capitalized, very, very small sub-billion dollar companies that don't have access to capital that are just sort of surviving and, and, and adding to a very complicated landscape of, mm -hmm. of production, supply, growth, et cetera. So, you know, the unfortunate thing is I would say that 30% of employment has to go away. Are those only the small guys, though? Uh, well, it's a, whoever merges in, in a merger, the only way you can actually make any money, if the company that you're buying has $50 million a year in G&A, mm -hmm. you need to wipe out all $50 million. Because, you know, and, and I use this example with Anadarko and Oxy. Oxy went to the dance to buy Anadarko, and they brought all of their own employees. They know all of their own employees, and they trust all their own employees. Correct. And so there are some open positions that for sure Anadarko people might fit great. But the cultural problems between Anadarko and Oxy, because they're just two they're different rampant. companies, are really hard to overcome. Mm -hmm. so, it, so in order for Oxy to make this work, as they've done, they sort of force the Anadarko people out. They post some jobs. They hire the best who remain yeah. from all of industry. Which they probably already knew. Right. And so then that's probably 20 or 30% of the combined employment goes away mm -hmm. for Oxy to win that deal. So it's not just the small guys. You know, this morning we saw that uh, Parsley's buying Jagged Peak. Yeah. That's a $2.5 billion deal. 100 people in Denver, you know, not including the field. Um, I mean, all different sizes are going to come together. But but honestly, employment, it, ju it just has to fall. Number of companies need to fall. And we will be in a place probably in three to five years where there's 20 large companies and some private companies mm -hmm. who are all doing the activity and everyone else is, is gone. I think so. Um, so recently, y'all participated, or rather you participated, and I'm going to call it a completions forum. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact title of it. Um, but I had some friends there who were, they were actually sending me pictures of you talking during it. Oh, so boy. like, just so you know, I'm everywhere. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> can you take us through what that was all about? What you're, I, you said that you had gone in kind of cynical, but left on a more positive note. So what changed? What, what, what were your takeaways? What are people talking about? Well, the, the driver and, and really the driver of the beating series um, was, was Mark, Mark and I were sitting in, uh, in his office just chatting and, and we want to we have a conversation. And so I'm going to use, the, this is what I constantly beat on. So in an overpressured reservoir like the Delaware Basin, mm -hmm. guys are using coil tubing to clean out. And so, and so, so coil tubing can cost $350,000 
we've seen AFEs that are seven hundred fifty thousand dollars mm-hmm. just to clean out plugs. Yeah. Where where sleeves exist, dissolvables exist, large bore flow throughs exist. There is some technology that that exists to solve the problem. And if we, we can't beat up our vendors anymore to keep dropping prices twenty percent, maybe you get one percent, maybe you get two percent. Well, they're 2%. doing layoffs too. Exactly, and I mean, the people are the easiest thing to get rid of. Hundred percent. And so so the driver was like, why are we doing some of the things we're doing? I mm-hmm. get in two thousand fourteen when oil was one hundred forty seven dollars a barrel, you needed four oil tanks and four water tanks and you needed like trucks to haul off the water so you can maximize your IP. Mm-hmm. But a year from then, the the well's producing 100 barrels a day, which means when you have 1,600 barrels of storage on location, you have 16 days. Each tank costs $25,000. Each tank has a thief hatch that has mm-hmm. emissions. Like, all, so why are we doing what we're doing? So, so the challenge of the completions forum was taking the beating series into let's bring 20 or 25 people from industry at all different companies and talk about what they're doing to innovatively solve the problem so that we can start having a best practices. Because I don't see our industry now that all the land is held. Our, our industry is not competing with each other. We're competing with external forces that want our industry to go away. Mm-hmm. We're competing with OPEC. But, yep. but if we can do more with less and, and have the smartest people have a network to be able to solve real problems, that was why we did the forum. Um, did anyone say, oh, we're doing this because our neighbor did it and it worked well? Uh, that seems to be a plague. Yeah. I I mean, I don't think anyone explicitly said it, but yeah, I I mean, and, and I'll use the example, you know, when we were at one energy, um, a service company was pushing very hard for us to use their sleeves. Okay. Um, they were a very, very large service company that also had pressure pumping, wireline drill bit. They had, they have the whole suite. So just to be clear, fill in the blank. (laughs) It's one of the big guys. And, and the reason was because in 2017, when we were doing our activity, there Mm -hmm. were no rigs available. The the Permian was hotter than anything. You couldn't get services. No one would show up. Like it was the, if amazingly two years ago, a year and a half ago, it was the busiest time ever. Mm -hmm. And you look at today. And they were pushing sleeves, and and they actually made sense to me because when I was in the Bakken in 2009 and 10, we were using sleeve systems before they went to the cemented plug and perf. Yeah. And and I really like that idea. Now, as a private equity guy who ran, who actually ran a different company's sleeves on two wells, um, it was a tremendous amount of technical risk. And again, had had we not been a small company with me as the decision maker and you know if it didn't work i was going to be fired for my decision as Mm -hmm. opposed to like this political thing yeah it doesn't work and so the completion forum was was really just to get to start the conversation around what technologies are emerging that Mm -hmm. we can utilize to end up with better results so that we can make our industry better because every free dollar of cash flow in 2020 is going to go to debt repayment Mm -hmm. which means if we can cut four tanks and coil tubing and you know, uh, 20% of your fluid volume and 5% of your sand volume, and you just don't have it, and you can save 10% of the well, that's a million dollars that's going to go to debt repayment instead of some artificial IP and, and rate of return that makes no sense. <laughs> and then we're going to get out of debt, and yeah. then we're going to have a healthy industry that doesn't need to constantly be laying people off. Mm-hmm. Well, I've heard that you um, have penned a few open letters in your time. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Can we discuss this? Sure. <laughs> okay. So I've heard you've uh, penned a few open letters in your time. Yeah. Especially to your investors. What are they? Because well, I am not finding them on So, Google. yeah. Yeah. No. So so the open letters, uh, to be clear, um, 
They aren't yeah, as public as you would think. Yeah, well, no, they're they're definitely not. Um, they're definitely not to my investors. Our, our investors, they're actually part of the management team as well, which is cool. Um, okay. But anyway, let's differentiate Franklin Mountain. Uh, and, and I should always say the disclaimer, all the views are mine. Exactly, um, I exactly. Don't, I don't speak for them. But I, I can say, even though I have to say it, but but I also can say it. I mean, these are the some of the greatest, smartest, like just, I just can't tell people how fortunate we are with mm-hmm. what happened there. So, no, the open letters, um, it, the, the first open letter was actually an open letter to operators on LinkedIn pre hot take of the day. Okay. And it, it was basically just a plea to the major Permian players. I won't mention their names on this because I've been I've become better at not mentioning people's names because that is what people get upset about. Where's the fun in that? I know, but you guys can visualize who I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and I'm sure you could find it, but it was sort of dear so-and-so, mm-hmm. please shut down your rigs. You're absolutely killing us. And then I walked through how Ducks are at the highest level, and you can complete ducks for seven months without actually needing to drill any incremental wells. Mm-hmm. And half cycle returns would allow you to pay down your debt, which would allow you to be able to get out of debt and stop the cycle, et cetera, et cetera. And then I ended it love and hugs, David. Oh, I do remember this one. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I've had a couple love and hugs at the end. Um, uh, a very good friend of mine uses that quote all the time, and, and it's, it's hilarious. So um, I, the first open letter I actually wrote was to a CEO when I was 22. And they Maybe were, that's the one I'm thinking They were of. running, yeah, and, and it, it was, I mean, that would be impossible to find. But I basically <laughs> I basically said that they weren't running their, their business appropriately, and I pr- proposed a whole bunch of mergers that they could do and sent it to the CEO. And so you've been a disruptor since I have, the beginning. I, 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 w- I will say, I will give this person credit because they did call me, and we did end up having about an hour conversation about the letter. So I guess I've been an activist investor, but I only had like seven shares. So, <laughs> so... Um, I don't quite have the balance sheet to go full activist yet, but um, your wife and parents, you must keep them on edge. <laughs> uh, yeah, everyone, everyone always w- gets worried about what I'm going to type the next day. Well, so when you first entered the Delaware, you, I remember you being quoted as saying you knew it was going to be amazing. Everything you were looking at, just you knew it was bigger than most people were even realizing at the time, and that's why y'all had to go in and figure out the acreage and start drilling. From a reservoir perspective. Mm-hmm. What were you looking at? What was your secret sauce that helped you put the the pieces together? Because arguably, you saw it before a lot of people saw it. Well, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna give kudos to to my longtime business partner Brandon White, um, and, <laughs> and and so he's probably listening and 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 rolling his eyes as he does. But Brandon and I have have probably one of the the best partnerships that that I've I've had in my work world. Mm-hmm. Um, he brings he brings a level of of impatience and hunger and just mass focus on data and, and basins. So when we started One Energy, the, the the thing that made us do it was we were basinless. So yeah. I had worked the Bakken, I'd worked the Delaware, I'd worked the Eagleford, and we'd looked at and we'd, we'd built um, databases of, of all of the, the type curves and EURs of every single well ever drilled. Um, so we have that of every oil, oil basin. Mm-hmm. But it was really Brandon who was seeing what was going on in the Delaware and that in order in order for companies to exist, that's where all the inventory was. Yeah. That's where all the economics were. At the time, the Midland was really So you hotter. were really following the money. It wasn't necessarily yeah, a Yeah, 100%. Output. I mean, no, so I, I always say... Um, Your bus bench. You can, you, you, can, you can have the greatest technical idea ever. And I know a lot of people who are probably listening have been trying to raise money around conventional ideas and Ooh. CO2 and water flow. 
that's not like you can't raise money around that because there's no exit. And, mm-hmm. and in oil and gas, people make money by selling in the cycles. And especially private equity, their business yeah. model is built around selling. So yeah. you have to start with the end in mind. And what Brandon saw in particular was uh, the Delaware was amazing. Um, it was where all the inventory was. And Lee County's in popular. particular, <laughs> New Mexico was not understood because of the state and, the, and the Fed. And having worked in North Dakota for Interplus, and we had a whole bunch of Indian, um, we were on the Indian reservation and mm-hmm. um, had to deal with all those. So I, I, I had the operating experience with, with understanding the complexities. So Brandon and Brandon took his insight that New Mexico was the place, combined with my technical insight that the, the wells in New Mexico are actually better. Mm-hmm. And that because of forced pooling, <laughs> Um, you can go longer, but the guys were resisting it at the time. And yeah. because of state and fed and fee and the complexities, it wasn't understood. So when we made the decision in September of 2016 to go a whole hog in the Delaware, it was the combination of the two. And okay. then it was just sheer hustle, uh, you know, in large part due to Brandon, um, our layman, Jeff Lyerly, who just like every 10 acre, every 40 acre, every tract, like Basin Land Records, constantly understanding the whole dynamic of what was available mm-hmm. and then overlaying that with with my technical view of the basin which was EUR driven completions driven hope is not a plan spacing is not a plan <laughs> and so we came up with a framework that that identified the three townships or the five townships that we thought were the best remaining okay. and we were able to put 12,000 acres together in that and you know I'm very fortunate with Franklin Mountain that that we sold the last of our asset to Franklin Mountain, and mm-hmm. then we combine that with the Fed sale, which was totally adjacent. So, you know, we're back to 10,000 acres, Delaware operator, in the part of the play that technically looked the best. But yeah, it started because of we knew where the money needed to go. And that's the challenge today is I, I don't know where you would deploy new capital <laughs> right right now. Underappreciated basins, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are tough. I mean, look, look at the, yeah. Um, we can talk about that separately. <laughs> the secret sauce of where to go next. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, it's funny you say all that because most of the influencers I've been interviewing, they give the Delaware Permian all these shale plays really three, five years max. Yeah. I mean, they their comment is we ignored the engineering and science so much that we jacked it up. Right. We wanted these great IPs that mean absolutely nothing, 30, 60, 90 we're falsifying these KPIs, and now we've wine racked the heck out of our reservoirs so much we can't even go back with enhanced recovery in most of these areas. So, what's your take on that opinion? So, I, I've been. It was actually funny when I heard one one of your earlier podcasts that the two I've listened to. I think those are the only two public ones, and they're great. And and I love what you're doing. They're ten alive now. Um, okay, great. <laughs> I love I love I love what you're doing. Um, Thank you. But I've been saying probably going back to 2009 that that our industry is so efficient with capital mm-hmm. that that we're like locusts in a field, and that we will pick Ooh. we will pick it clean in five years easily. And well, that's why and, you have the five to seven year popularity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so so you know you look at the Barnett Shale now again. Price always factors into this because people make expectations around where price is going and they build a business. But the Barnett was horizontal in 2005. By the time the the gas price crash happened and kind of 
it was 2006. By yeah. 2010, the Barnett was done. No one yeah. ever talked about it again. It never showed up in a presentation. Anadarko bought Kermagee to be the best onshore natural player, you know, resource player in mm-hmm. the world for gas. Yeah. 2006. By 2011, they were drilling Wattenberg wells mm-hmm. and nothing but Wattenberg, which was oil. The Bakken really, you know, came into form in 2009 when I was at Enterplus. By 2014, price related as well. But by 2014, there was nothing left in the Bakken. Rig count felt 75% and it basically hasn't grown. Yeah. Eagleford was 2010, 2015, same thing happened. It's been flat ever since. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I missed when I when I thought that we would hit peak oil in 2014 was the Permian was going horizontal in 2014 mm-hmm. at the same time as oil had fallen. And many of the operators already own Permian, legacy Permian positions that exactly. they that were underappreciated. So they didn't need to buy them. So mm-hmm. therefore, they didn't lever up their balance sheets to be in the best part of the basin. And you truly can drill economic wells at the 50 to $60 range when you have no acreage cost mm-hmm. there. So in 2014, all the Midland and, and Delaware Basin players started drilling, which then made production grow, which analysts and, and writers and talking heads said, see, this is what the oil and gas industry can do. It can innovate at 50. Well, no, we didn't innovate the Bakken. We didn't innovate the Eagleford. We didn't e- innovate the, the Barnett. Mm-hmm. We happened to find a play at exactly the time that price went from 140 to a barrel to 30 that was economic at 50. And if you look at the growth in the last five years, 100% of the growth in the U.S. has been the Midland and Delaware Basin. Mm-hmm. And in the last eight months, those two basins have flattened out. Yeah. Because industry poured so much capital to them that we're now in the five-year inning. So this doesn't mean that there aren't businesses there and there isn't money to be made. But in terms of the growth phase of the, the business, I would say that the Delaware and the Midland are now flat. Mm-hmm. There's some companies who will grow through consolidation. But look at the Bakken and the Eagleford as a template for where we are. That's that's the five-year cycle, and I know you've talked about it, but that's why I say <laughs> – I've said the five-year cycle for a long time, and I don't yeah. know what the next play is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I just I just don't. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's take that and go back to KPIs mm-hmm. because they're all, they're all wrong. Yes. We're looking at it wrong. Yes. What changes? What do you think needs to change? How do we change it? Let's use this pivot point to our advantage. How do we make this better for – the money and for the engineer. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I wrote in a post a couple of weeks ago. Shale's <laughs> Shale's not a Ponzi scheme. Um, the the you're the, the only one who said that so far. I know. Well, so because because again, a Ponzi scheme says it's not it's not real. Well, they're they're referring to the reserves, I think. So the the reserves, reserves. the reserves the reserves to me are right as well. What okay. is what is wrong are balance sheets. So hmm. if you go if you go to 2014. Uh, when you know the Bakken was going, the Eagleford was going, they were near the end of their cycle, and oil was very high. Mm-hmm. Companies who didn't have resource plays, so this is the problem with con- the guys who say, oh, we can go to the conventional. Conventional oil and gas has been drilled since the 60s through Before. 1986 <laughs> when it started declining. Mm-hmm. We have been on conventional decline since 1986 until the resource plays. Mm-hmm. So, so resource plays were this new growth thing, and in 2014 – because people didn't know that oil was going to fall from 147 a barrel, <laughs> they levered up their balance sheet to buy assets that worked at $100 a barrel. Mm-hmm. So they take on this massive debt load, and then prices fall. And okay. so the banks are forgiving because they realize that there's an issue, and they went through the housing crisis in 2008 that said, if we call all our loans, we can like we're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. So 2014, guys were actually pretty nice 
in my opinion, to the oil and gas companies because there weren't that many bankruptcies. Okay. So you look today in 2019 after we've we've hit $73 oil again. We've been running a business, etc., etc. Et it was for 12 hours, but I mean it was it was um, it October. <laughs> it was October of 2018, and, yeah. and it had been ramping throughout the entire summer. Okay. Okay. And and you know there was a low. It was about $46 a barrel of August of 2017, and mm-hmm. I know that because One Energy was about to launch our process, and the bankers were saying this is the worst time ever. <laughs> and then flash forward two years later, and they're like that relative to today was the best time ever. <laughs> but but so oil was $46 a barrel that day and about a year later it was 73. Mm-hmm. So there was this big ramp. If you look at company balance sheets today, many of them have two and a half to three times debt to EBITDA. Mm-hmm. When you run a model on two and a half times, two and a half to three times debt to EBITDA, if you have a billion dollars of cash flow, like that's $3 billion of debt. That's almost $200 million a year of interest payments. So even if you're able to cut your capital and run a business, the interest payments are going to kill you. And without price help, there is literally no way out. Mm -hmm. So, so people I think are mistaking the shale Ponzi scheme for that in 2008, there were no businesses that were working and the fed lowered interest rates to basically zero to stimulate the economy and oil and gas was still working because prices were high. Yeah. So oil and gas companies took advantage of very, very, very cheap money. Mm -hmm. Banks took advantage of being able to deploy money because they deploy money and then they get fees. Yeah. It gave a massive amount of money to our industry (laughs) and then our industry levered it up and price changed. So, yeah. so that's, I mean, so that's, that's the real crux of it is we have balance, we have a, a crisis of capital okay. and until we fix balance sheets, our industry uh, will remain very, very challenged. So let's go back to the KPIs, yeah. IPs, uh, type curves, drilling per foot, how quickly you get done. Yeah. Uh, most, <laughs> most uh, clusters in a stage, things along those lines. What do we fix? Um, so, so number one, I think people need to focus. Everyone always gives a hard time because they don't like the number, but at the end of every year, companies have to announce their SEC standardized measure of proved reserves, Mm -hmm. PV10. And that is a number that's based on a five-year drill plan and PUDs and PDPs at a price deck. And it has a value. Mm -hmm. People need to start paying attention to NAV per well or NAV per share using that metric. Okay. So um, pivoting away from production growth, like these these people who show type curves that show like 90 days of performance, like who cares? Exactly. Most people wouldn't even do a decline for three to six months. And you'd, you'd anchor your, your EURs based on all the wells drilled in the last three years. So like, <laughs> so like who cares? Yes, you had a really nice rate. So um, I think production growth needs to go away. Okay. So it needs to be NAV per share, NAV per share growth. Okay. Uh, and then free cash flow generation, which would I would define as the cash flow you generate from your operations, less the cash flow that you invest through capex, mm-hmm. plus the interest expense. Okay. So if you're not including the amount of interest you're paying, you can be free cash flow positive, and still be negative cash flow because all of the money you're generating is paying interest, not debt. And if you're not paying down your debt. You're in huge trouble. You're yeah. you're in huge trouble. It's exactly. just a function of time until you have to restructure and go through bankruptcy. Exactly. What are your operational tricks to get everybody to that point or to survive the Delaware? What, uh, what's your secret sauce? 
Well, I mean, so so I'll talk for Franklin Mountain. So this will be a pivot away from the hot take of the day guy, <laughs> who is a very separate and distinct guy from the person who who works. His alter ego. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so our entire acreage position is two mile laterals. Okay. Our entire acreage position is being developed on multi well pads. Yes. Where you don't need to move the rig. So it's, it can be as efficient as possible. Okay. Our whole operational plan is based on downsizing facilities so okay. that we're going to choke wells in the early time. And we can talk about the reason why it's, it's not being calculated pr- correctly. These high IPs lead to rates of return. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't make sense. When, when you're judged cash flow, it's how much oil are you going to produce in the first year? And so you can choke wells, downsize facilities, have all your oil, have all your gas, have all your water go to pipeline, co-develop six wells on a pad, frack them all at the same time, never come back, and Mm -hmm. then move to the next one so you limit parent-child relationships. So of our 10,000 acres, our development plan is to go and drill all of those wells the best we can, the most efficient we can, complete them all at the same time, and Mm -hmm. and just march through using no debt. Maybe you guys will become the new benchmark well, instead I, I, of those other ones that everybody's following. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, if 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 companies don't go through bankruptcy, which bankruptcy solely just restructures the capital structure mm-hmm. as a simple. So if you have a lot of debt, the banks want their money back, and then the shareholders want to own, and they fight because exactly. shareholders are on the board and debt can't do anything until it goes through bankruptcy. Exactly. Those people need to talk to come up with a capital capital structure that works, and then every other company can do what we're doing. We're mm-hmm. just we just happened to buy in 2018, uh, and <laughs> use no debt, so yeah. we're not burdened by the sins of the past, which is debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so that those are the KPIs. I mean, it's it's got to be net asset value. It's got to be net asset value per share. It's got to be the way you manage your balance sheet, which which is why I think finance people are going to have their day. Um, they finance people have always felt bad that they sit in a back seat to technical Everyone. people, <laughs> to technical people. But like figuring out how to go through bankruptcy and restructure and then and then properly capitalize yeah. is going to be the challenge in the next two years. And there's a lot of really bright finance people that I think this is going to be their time to shine. So I'm excited to see that. Business before engineering sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually kind of funny you mentioned that because it leads me into my next segment, which you understand the money probably better than most in the industry. That's because Brandon White coaches oh. me every single day. Okay, well then, thank God for him. Do y'all teach a class? Like how does someone like me, who is a reservoir engineer, technically trained, how do they get more towards the side of the money so that they can make these same types of decisions? Right. They're looking for that next step. You can't just be a reservoir engineer. Well, I mean, certainly the experience. Um, and I talked about the partnership I have with Brandon. Um, because Your dad's been grilling you since you were 16. And, and my dad. I mean, <laughs> again, I, I was fortunate. So I started my whole career in reservoir. So everything was based in the rock mm-hmm. and it was based in what EURs were. So I didn't believe, like I haven't believed the hype in these completions and spacing and IPs yeah. and I've never believed it. I've always been a cynic on that. Well, good, cause it's not working. No, I know. But so I was fortunate because the reservoir side and then, and then on the finance side, um, you need to be exposed to people who have that discipline. And, and I say like the, the teams that work, you can't be good at everything, mm-hmm. but you need to bring the best in all the disciplines together. Mm-hmm. And so for me, Brandon is the best in understanding the money. Mm-hmm. And so I've been fortunate because we talk, you know, 10 times a day for the last four, three years. And then before that, when we were friends, mm-hmm. so he's rubbed off a lot on me. Um, for people who are wanting to learn, finding a mentor who actually, who actually understands beyond the technical and, and, and having a mentor, I think is really important. Yeah. Um, 
if you especially have a, now, especially <laughs> now, if you have a bot, you know, and and reading a lot. You're a big reader. Reading and and actually of late, it's I've done a lot of podcasts because I travel yeah. a lot and it's hard <laughs> to walk through the airport while reading. Yes. Um, but it's really easy to listen to podcasts, so I try and listen to a ton of podcasts. And then I've been getting into these Netflix kind of documentary series, oh, like so uh, good. Inside Bill's Brain. I think is amazing. I've been watching Dirty Money recently. Um, I watch a lot of murder ones. Yeah, yeah I, I try and do. Helpful. I try and do more of the the real life, like what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then you know, about once every three months, I'll watch The Big Short because I feel like I'm getting too optimistic and I need to bring the cynicism back. So I <laughs> so I watch it. It's not fun to smile all day long. No, it's it's not. It's not. Um, so going through your, you've always walked into the room and you knew you deserved to be there. Not everyone has that kind of confidence and it's gotten you to where you are today in terms of management. So can you take us through good management practices, bad management practices? What's the dumbest thing you've seen? What's hmm. some of the best things you've seen for those who are trying to navigate, especially our younger ones who really probably shouldn't be in a management role just yet, but right. they got put there. Right. Um, the, the One of the best management tricks that I saw um, was someone I worked for at Anadarko. And uh, I, I, there, it's on my blog if someone wants to read it. I think it's called How a Large Man with a Goatee Made Me a Better Manager. What's your blog again? Uh, it's at davidramstonwood.com. Okay, good. And uh, there's there's some pieces in there that are from the book that I, I am I am working on getting it <laughs> Gotta published. Got to throw in that plug. Exactly. So, but anyway, what what he did was he had a one page sheet that sort of said um, he listed out what his hot buttons were, mm -hmm. what his expectations were, and what his favorite quotes were. And he, he, a personality resume. Yeah, and he, and he encouraged everyone to do it as well, and so. You, you were you never knew you always knew where you stood mm -hmm. and so I like I like to believe and and you can get feedback from the people who work for me now I <laughs> like everyone knows how I feel about everything all the time okay. and so so no one should ever be worried about like am I you know does David feel a certain way like is he mad at me because <laughs> if I'm mad you know yeah I think you'd tell him um so so to me setting expectations big listening um, I, I still need to be a better listener. Obviously, I like the microphone. I like to talk. But like when your technical people make recommendations that are their experts, then you need to use make strategy decisions based on that and not question it and go. Mm -hmm. The worst thing I've heard is trust but verify. It, it's so stupid. You either trust the people or you don't. Exactly. And if you're having to verify what they're telling you, then they're, they're not they're not the right person. Yeah. And so I feel very blessed at Franklin Mountain that, that the team we've built are all people that I've worked with for a long time, known for a long time, or known people who've known them for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I trust them all. I think they're the best in industry. I go to battle with them. I'll you know, whatever they say is the answer is the answer. And so we we have lots of technical dialogue about it, but mm -hmm. But th those are some tricks around management. You, you said, I, do I feel like I deserve to be in, in a management seat because of the confidence? No. Um, I feel that I'm fortunate that I've been exposed to enough of the industry that whenever I make a decision, I'm not just a reservoir engineer. Mm -hmm. I'm a finance person. I'm a BD person. I'm an ops person. And I'm a reservoir person. So people who don't have the breadth of experience... Um, I think it's hard to be a manager and you need to work really, really hard exactly. to, to broaden your understanding because you're not just making decisions for your discipline. You're making decisions for all disciplines at all times. Mm -hmm. What about for the over-eager engineer? The over-eager yeah, maybe, engineer. Maybe myself, but y y I mean, there are times I'm, I'm very excited to get that seat at the table. Right. Don't always earn it. So what, what's the advice for those that are... Uh, 
they're not really worried about the downturn, right. but they're still trying to charge ahead in some capacity. I mean, to, to me, it's, it's what's the driver? I, I'm, I work in oil and gas because I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. And it's my hobby. I can hardly wait to get to the office and, and research whatever it is I'm going to research. Um, so, so becoming a manager and running people wasn't really the, the objective. Mm-hmm. The objective was to participate in the industry in the best role that I could. Okay. So to, I, I, you've probably heard me say this before. Industry is not a ladder. It is not about climbing the ladder to be a manager, to be a VP, to be a C-suite, to be the CEO, to be on a board, to retire. Like that's a very natural, logical progression that people think about. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was at Anadarko. They transferred me to Denver. I was on the management team. Like my career was going incredible. I, they were paying for me to do my MBA. That's you know, cool. I felt like I could do no wrong. And then Anadarko bought Kermagee. All of my bosses were fired. Kermagee took all of the good spots. And I went from being like a supported, had a lot of people who were supportive and had encouraged me to continue to be confident and challenge the status quo mm-hmm. to a whole bunch of people who'd never met me before. And the first time they meet me, they're like, who is this crazy person? <laughs> and and so, like my in in the in the snap of a fingers, I went from I would still be at Anadarko to this day to all of a sudden that was no longer on the path. Yeah. And and so for me to internalize that and be like, wow, was that ever a failure? It's just that's just not true. Mm-hmm. So so to the overeager engineer, you get in the river at the beginning of your career with a whole bunch of other people. And some people are on the left bank and some are on the right and some have rapids and some have rocks and some have offshoots. But you have to make the most of the river that you can while you're there and focus only on what's happening in the river today. Mm-hmm. And there will be opportunities that come up because you met someone or, I mean, if you think about the one energy story, I was raising money in 2012. That's how I met Leo. Um, Leo, uh, we didn't reconnect for four years until we started the company. We'd stayed in touch. Hmm. Brandon happened to be on the board of a company that I'd co-founded that was a Bakken non-op player and they traded out one guy he had just hired. He was on the board. That's how we met. Like, and so those are the two people that were most influential to us starting One Energy that mm-hmm. I would never have predicted that that was going to happen. So, so think more about a river and calm down because, calm you know, I've been lying about my age when I was, I mean, I was 28, I was a manager and I was telling people I was 32, I was racing through life. I was having very limited fun. Um, I, I was not a very good, nice person to my family cause I was always working Yeah, and, and it isn't been until the last probably five years, six years that I've really like settled down and been like, you know, make the best of it mm-hmm. and it's a long career and we're going to be doing whatever we're doing for 40 years. So we don't need to race, um, and get on the management team quite yet. You know, what's kind of funny is two years ago, you told me to calm down and go work in Texas. And I did one of those things. Yeah. So. <laughs> Wait, the, the work in Texas. Uh, I still stayed in Denver, but all my work was in Texas. Yeah. So I got the exposure. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, he's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so talk to us about your book, yeah. because you've also shared that, and I've only read up to version 16, but this is stuff people need, especially right now. And yeah. it, I mean, when my company went through layoffs, I went back and read that book. So how do people get it? When's it going live on Amazon? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what inspired it. Like, So, so I wrote the book um, as a coping me- method as I was in my transition between, uh, can I swear on this podcast? I think I have oh, every okay. like five seconds. Um, you know, from the asshole I was probably pre 2012 to the asshole that now people get to see every day, um, as part of the transition, yeah, the LinkedIn asshole. Um, 
But no, so I wrote it. It's called uh, What the Fuck is Wrong with Everybody Else? Mm-hmm. What They Didn't Teach You in Business School. And um, <laughs> when, when I was involuntarily separated from Interplus in 2012, um, I went from sort of 300 emails and phone calls and running four rigs and feeling like I was the most important person person irreplaceable in the company yeah to not having health care not knowing my family and like reintroducing them on the to myself to them on the couch and <laughs> I needed I needed something to do and yeah. so I started processing all my thoughts and so it was it was just it was just a very very humbling and and transparent writing process so I wrote it but I didn't really publish it because, again, the same thing about, you know, I needed a job and I'm not going to go publish some <laughs> book saying I've had success. You're when, start a podcast? At, at that time, I, I hadn't had the success. So so when, when we sold One Energy, I'd always planned on publishing the book. Yeah. So working on getting it published now, I'm hoping to have it published by the end of the year. Excellent. Um, and I'm getting to the point now where, you know, it, it, it was it was early. I'm not going to go rewrite it because I've had a lot new of new experiences. Um, but for those who, who would like to read it, um, at some point in December, if I haven't got it published, you just send me an email and I'll send you the, the PDF copy and you can read it. It's awesome. You should ask for this. It's (laughs) definitely, it's definitely not about the money. It was always about the experience and Mm -hmm. just feeling connected to other people who went through tough things. And, and fortunately now that one energy was a success, I can say the journey worked out. Um, so, so that's the book. Uh, I think the next book I write, which probably will be, will money book. It's actually going to be probably a, a hot take of the day book oh, yeah. where we'll look at what's happened over from last year to some time period, because I think as a retrospective seeing mm-hmm. over a year, all of the changes that happened in oil and gas and that they were all observable if people were paying attention. And so, you know, that'll be a couple of years out, but I think that's the next project. And you asked what, what's next with the hot take of the day. I think that's that's kind of headed the way, that direction. I was hoping you would say that. So I was going to start a new segment with you today, but uh, my spies begged me not to. I was going to start Mary Shag Kill oh, with no. uh, public companies. Oh, boy. Instead, I'm going to ask, why did someone hit you with a golf ball? And how did that happen? Yeah, so <laughs> so a, a, uh, a colleague of mine, um, Mark, who, who I've hired now three times, um, and you just can't get rid I, of him. I can't, no, I, and I, you know, I, I always I value the energy he brings and and the ideas and, and he challenges me, so it's it's good. Um, I took him golfing. He was like learning and had been working on a swing, and and so I went. Uh, I brought him and my my older son who was also learning, and I hadn't really paid attention to his skill level, so I was paying. I was like about a hundred yards up in the fairway going to get my son's ball out of the bunker. (laughs) And I just hear this sort of screeching yell. And there is a ball coming about three feet off the ground that Mark has just smashed. And it hits me right in the leg (laughs) on the first hole. Um, so, so anyway, it was, it was kind of funny. He, he, but he did, he survived that. He's, uh, he's still working for me and, and I don't hold that many grudges against him. That so. explains why he sent me two texts to ask about this. Yeah, you know, he did. He hit me, he hit me pretty hard. So. That's amazing. So you're pretty busy. Give us a day in your life. How do you stay organized, efficient? Mm-hmm. How do you actually make your inbox not drive your life and get things done? Because everyone's looking for that special combination. So if you have any tips or tricks, can yeah. you give them to us? So so number one, I I never have any unread emails in my inbox. Um, How? Well, so I, I call it, people also notice I go to meetings and I don't write things down. 
Um, because yeah, I have noticed that. Yeah. So, so to me, if I can't remember it, it probably wasn't important. Mm-hmm. And if I need to do it, I should go right back to my office and do it immediately. Mm-hmm. So that in this way, this, this prevents me from procrastinating. Um, unfortunately, this is a bad habit I'm trying to get out of, but I'm, I'm always on my phone. So like literally if you email me, if I don't respond in seven minutes, I probably am dead. Um, so, so you have responded to all of mine immediately. Yeah. So, so I, I mean the way I just, nothing ever builds up. Okay. Um, so how do I, how do I organize my day? I wake up, um, what time? Probably six. Okay. Um, six thirty. I post the hot take, which I had written the night before. Okay. Um, and you know, I'll have one final read, post it, get up, <laughs> try and get into the office for sort of eight, eight thirty. Okay. Um, get up to speed. I read all of, all of the news, all, if there's quarterly reports, again, how does this impact? I think understanding the industry is my job. Exactly. And so I make sure that I read everything. Um, then, you know, if we have meetings, which we try and keep meetings to an absolute limited, because again, if you have the right people, they don't really need your help guiding. If Mm -hmm. they have problems, they can come and chat with me, but otherwise they kind of go through. (laughs) Yeah. So, so we, we, we're headed towards picking up a rig at the end of the year. So, cool. so wherever people need support, I'll do that. Um, I have probably a couple LinkedIn coffees a week with people who've reached out that, that want to sort of chat about challenges or things. So I, I put that in my schedule. How many people are you mentoring? Uh, like for real mentoring, not like, not, up. not for real mentoring, but I, I will certainly, I always say there's, there's not a meeting I won't take. Okay. Um, for the most part. Now, if someone's trying to sell me something, I'm not going to take that meeting, but if someone genuinely wants, advice and and we can fit it in the schedule i'll generally do it so i legit i probably have three to five kind of linkedin coffees with people i don't really know and then i just say you know check back with me in three to six months and and let me know how it's going have you ever had a bad coffee meeting uh no i mean i've had people try and pivot it into a sales call oh that's annoying um and uh, i mean it's just you know if you want to sell stuff get get in touch with mark or vlad Um, (laughs) exactly (laughs) i'm not really sure that i'm going to make those decisions so so anyway so i do that and then you know i coach hockey uh Mm -hmm. still um i had been working out a lot i've kind of got off that i've been traveling a lot of late um so you know uh, my day's not really that exciting um (laughs) it's just i i really i don't believe in meetings um, I like that. Uh, you know, if, if people need to talk to me, they can text me, write me, call me, whatever. And in 30 seconds, we can solve something. We'll have a, a touch touch base on real issues that need to be described. But otherwise, everyone, if you hire the right people, you don't really need to steer them. Correct. Um, and I respond to all my emails and text ASAP. That's amazing. Do you have a book, podcast, or other resource you would recommend? So I listen to The Daily, mm-hmm. which is uh, about a 30-minute podcast from the New York Times. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't like news because mm-hmm. I think new, news news is too um, biased. Polarized. It's too biased. Whereas the New, the New York Times, you know, when people can say right, left, or whatever, I, I'm say, I'd say I'm a moderate. And um, they, they pick a very relevant topic for that day mm-hmm. that's come out of a newspaper article of, uh, that they've written, and they have sort of a 30-minute discussion on it, and they, they do a really nice job. So I listen to that. I listen to a lot of the, the, the oil and gas podcasts. Um, if, if anything, just to support, because again, I really feel like our industry needs a voice Yeah. and this is a great way to connect to people. Um, it's easier too. It's easier totally. for everybody's schedule. Um, what else? I'll pull up my phone and see what else I have on here. Um, I listened to how I built this, uh, which is, uh, an NPR okay. uh, broadcast, which I really, really like. 
Um, I go through cycles of fresh air, which again is NPR. I go through cycles of Tim Ferriss. Um, I listen to Spit and Chicklets. If, uh, <laughs> if for any hockey people out there, it's uh, wildly entertaining. Um, and uh, the Energy Gang, I've I've started. That was a Mark, uh, a Mark ad. They they talk more about wind, solar, nuclear. You've probably seen that I've been transitioning at least the writings a little bit to, to have oil and gas part of the solution instead of this finger pointing. And I think too many people in oil and gas are like, no wind is bad and no solar is bad, but well, it's were, all good. It's a defense thing. It's a defense thing, right? But we need to be inclusive. So I've been listening to those guys too. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I love, I love podcasts and, and obviously um, any Michael Lewis book I'll read over and over again. <laughs> well, DRW, thank you so much for taking the time today. You always you're always bestowing value to us and it's always actionable and takeaway. So thank you for doing what you do. Please keep it up. And we always look forward to the next hot take. Thanks so much for having me. All right. All right. DRW is the ultimate boss and leader. Of course, we all love his daily hot takes, but he is humble. He is accessible. He is dedicated and he is motivated. Our industry is so lucky to have the influencers that we do. And I hope everyone has an actionable takeaway from DRW's insights today. We are at a pivot point, so do not be afraid to have a voice. Do not be afraid to have opinions or to take action because without it, we cannot get ourselves out of the cycles we have generated. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions, shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Hold on, one more thing before you go. If today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.